Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. In the Red Pew Bible, page 461. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. I want to ask for you to turn in your Bibles to the 31st Psalm. If you did not have your Bible open at that point, as the reading was shared with us. Kim Knight is her name. She wrote a book called The Widow's Might, M-I-G-H-T. She wrote that book after she lost her husband. And here's part of what she shared in that book. If I could have one positive thing come from Dale's death, it would be the ability to explain in words the utter overwhelming sadness of the loss. One of the primary differences between the death of your spouse and the loss of anyone else is that you have a level of physical intimacy with your spouse that you just don't have with other people. That, combined with the sheer amount of time you spent together, heightens the loss. Until you live it, I'm not sure you can totally wrap your thoughts around the crushing magnitude of losing your spouse. Even as a strong woman with a powerful faith walk, a wonderful family, and a large support group, I was brought to my knees by Dale's death. Whatever happens in my future, I will never be the same. Some people who are sitting in this room can relate to what I just read. Because for most people, the loss of a beloved spouse is the greater loss. Oh, it's not the only loss. In a broken world, there are many, many things that we're going to experience, that we're going to lose. And most of the trials and difficulties we experience in life are different forms of loss. When you get cancer, you've lost your health. When your home burns down, you've lost a home. And when you have had a child that you have invested years of your life in to bring up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, chooses to embrace the devil and the world's ways, you have lost a child to the devil. Sometimes we lose friends. We lose friendships. 
We lose parents. There are all kinds of losses we can experience in our life. But for most people, the most difficult loss in life, the most overwhelming experience in their life is the loss of a beloved spouse. But it's not the only thing that can cause a person to be overwhelmed. In 1989, we were visiting with my parents and my wife's parents. It was Thanksgiving weekend. They lived about an hour from us, and so we spent the long weekend there with them and had a great time. We were headed home on Saturday night. We were driving our 1985 Pontiac Bonneville on a state route going north, a two-lane road. And there was an old retired Mennonite couple who had come to Hartville, Ohio for a wedding that night, that Saturday night, and they were headed home, traveling east, headed toward Youngstown, Ohio. We were about two, no more than three miles from our house when we were traveling north in that 1985 Pontiac that he missed the stop sign going east. And at 45 miles an hour, the car that I was driving in and the car that my family was in hit broadside that light blue little Ford Pinto. And Eileen Burford died that night because the front of my car hit her passenger side door. I was overwhelmed. I'd never been in an awful accident like that. I was shaken up a little bit. My wife was on crutches for a while. Thankfully, our children were not injured. They were in the back seat. It was an overwhelming experience. I went to Mrs. Burford's memorial service. My wife was not able to, but I attended that memorial service and it was a packed house. They chose to have that memorial service, though it was a good hour from their home, in the same Mennonite church building they were that night, that Saturday night, for that wedding. Mr. Burford was a retired Mennonite preacher. And if you were a Mennonite in eastern Ohio, western West Virginia or western Pennsylvania, you probably would have known of or heard of the Burfords. Boy, it was packed. I was sitting right in the middle of the auditorium. And whenever Mr. Burford got up behind the microphone for the first time in his wife's memorial service, he spotted me. And he called me out by name and he asked me to stand. I'm in my early 30s. I stood in response to his request. And then he said this. He said, I want to thank you for helping me get my wife to heaven. I was overwhelmed. What in the world was I supposed to say in response to that? What in the world was I supposed to do? I just quietly sat down. I was overwhelmed. When our youngest daughter was 10 years old, she went to youth camp and we went to pick her up and the nurse who was there that week suggested that we might want to take our daughter to the doctor because she suspicioned that there might be a problem. Because my wife, nor I, 
had a medical background. We didn't see what she saw. We ended up at a neurologist's office. And we find out through testing that she has a constriction or a restriction in something called, I'd never heard of it, a cerebral aqueduct. And because of that restriction or constriction, what was happening was that buildup of excess fluid was pushing her brain up against her skull. She did not have the common symptoms of a person who has that problem. She was not vomiting. She didn't have the severe headaches that ordinarily accompany that problem. But praise the Lord for that nurse at the camp who saw it. So we're told about this surgery where they drill a hole in your skull and they implant a valve. And then from the valve, they run a tube down your stomach and that valve controls your cranial pressure. And so we had that surgery done. We were very thankful that that surgical option was available. 30 days after that surgery, the post-op visit at the neurologist's office, when we thought things were fine, we find out things are worse now than they were before. Because now she has bilateral subdural hematomas. She's bleeding in both sides of her brain. Because what had happened was, whenever her brain then was relieved and came down from that skull and that pressure wasn't there anymore, now she starts bleeding between her skull and her brain. And now her brain is being pushed down because of that. And she's in big trouble now. So we take her to Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital of the University Hospitals of Cleveland in Cleveland, Ohio, a world-renowned children's hospital, where there was the only pediatric neurosurgeon between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Detroit, Michigan, a densely populated part of our country. There was only one pediatric neurosurgeon. And we went to Dr. Mapstone. During that summer, it was overwhelming. She had five brain surgeries. We were living Murphy's Law. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Between those surgeries, as complications continued to arise, I remember between two of those surgeries, we left our daughter in the pre-surgical room and we were walking to the family waiting room. And both of us were bawling our eyes out. And my wife said, I never want to walk down this hallway again. And guess what? Within 48 hours, we were walking down that hallway again. We were agonized. We were scared. We were frustrated. We were losing our child, our youngest child. Life did not seem very fair. We sure felt the bite that life was taking out of our lives. One day in the PICU, Pediatric Intensive Care, Dr. Mapstone came in, and this is the only thing I remember him saying during the, during the entire period of that hospitalization. Our daughter was not responsive. Didn't matter what you did to her physically, didn't matter what you said to her, she was unresponsive. Can you imagine the impact that has on a parent, seeing a child like that? My suspicion is somebody sitting in this room probably has experienced that. 
it's an overwhelming experience. Dr. Mapstone said on one occasion, neurosurgeons are often the bearers of bad news, end of quote. You know, at the time, I did not realize why he said that. But upon reflection, years later, I got to thinking, you know, he must have been preparing us for what might, he thought, might happen to us, that we would lose our daughter. So one day, my wife is sitting next to the bed where our daughter is laying unresponsive. And my wife has raw carrots in a baggie. And she takes out a raw carrot out of that baggie and she bites on it and starts chewing it. You know that sound? You know that funny sound? What's that sound? Those were the first words that came from our daughter's lips when she started coming back to us from that comatose-like state. I still love saying that. What's that sound? Boy, that is a sweet memory. But then we find out things are not all good, though. She's had such severe brain injury as a result of that that she can't walk. She can't feed herself. She had months and months of physical and occupational surgery, uh, occupational therapies. If you were to see her now, you wouldn't believe she went through that. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We are so fortunate that now in her early 40s, she's still alive. Faithful Christian, secretary in the Lord's church. By the way, you need to pray for her and pray for Miss Marilyn. And that other secretary you have that I don't think I've met yet, secretaries need prayers when they're secretaries at church. She's a secretary of the church in Villa Rica, Georgia, and her husband recently was appointed an elder in that church. We are so thankful. That was such a scary time. We were so overwhelmed. Then in my early 50s, my wife starts spending way too much time in the shower. I'm sitting on the bed many nights reading while I hear the shower running. And it keeps running. And it keeps running. I just dismissed that as... You know, when women get older, I guess they like to spend a lot of time in a hot shower. And that's the way I thought. Little did I know that was the first sign that she had Parkinson's disease. One of the potential symptoms is bradykinesia. It's just a fancy word for being in a slow motion world. And that's why it took her so long to take a shower. For eight and a half years, she declined rapidly as a Parkinson's patient. The typical Parkinson's patient, number one, doesn't die of Parkinson's, but she did. And the typical Parkinson's patient will live 20, even 30 years after their diagnosis. It's a life-altering, typically not a life-threatening disease. But it did kill her. On July 14 of 2013, I was told by the doctor that this was not an emergency situation, but he said, over a period of time, that Parkinson's disease is going to get up into her lungs, and she's just going to quit breathing. And that's what happened. Christmas morning, 2013, 9.40 in the morning, that's what happened. 
Boy, during that caregiving time, I thought I was going to snap on more than one occasion. It was exhausting. It was frustrating. Sometimes prompted anger. I was at the end of my rope. I was overwhelmed. If you know somebody who's caregiving right now, love them. And don't you dare ask them, what can I do for you? Don't put on them another burden. They already have enough. They don't need to be figuring out what you need to do for them. You need to be figuring out what you need to be doing for them. Do your homework. Find people who know them. Just do what you know needs to be done. Love them. See, the loss of a spouse is not the only reason people are overwhelmed. There are many, many reasons why people can be overwhelmed. Even good people, even great people, even wonderful, amazing, inspiring men and women of God can be overwhelmed. Psalm 31 is proof of it. Let me read to you what David wrote. I'd encourage you to watch it with your own eyes. Does this sound like a man who's got his ducks in a row? That's really doing good because he's a great man of faith? Because remember, he's the man after God's own heart. Remember that? He's not your average, ordinary Joe. He's your David, the man after God's own heart. Pick up at verse 9. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. For my eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances, and those who see me outside flee from me. Watch this one in verse 12. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. Does that sound like a guy who's got himself all together? David's a mess. He may have been a man after God's own heart. But the operative word in that evaluation and that declaration is man. A mere mortal human being. See, even great people of faith can struggle. Verse 13 says, For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. He's overwhelmed. What in the world? What in the world are we supposed to do when we feel so overwhelmed by the circumstances that we're dealing with? Well, to be overwhelmed is to be crushed or submerged under the negative circumstances that you're dealing with in your life. The loss of a beloved spouse will put you there in that environment, that overwhelming environment. The loss of your health could do it too. An amputation could do it too. A divorce could do it too. There are a multitude of things in life we could experience that would cause us to be able to relate to David very, very well. Because the things we experience in life can have a tremendous impact on us. Isn't that true when we're blessed? 
I'm sure many of us have had occasions, plural, in our life when we've been so richly blessed and that blessed time in our life has had such an impact on us, we're almost euphoric. Man, this is awesome. This is great. How about the burdens? How about a multitude of burdens? And how about heavy burdens? Boy, they can have an impact on us too. What in the world should we do? Number one, we ought to do what David did. He knew that the only way that he could handle this overwhelming time in his life, and I don't know what the details are. I don't know exactly when this was in David's life. But look at how he emphasizes He knew he needed to trust the Lord. Look at the very first verse. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. The English Standard Version says, in you, O Lord, I take my refuge. How about this? The weather report says a hurricane is headed toward Houston. Let's all go to the nearest mobile home park and find refuge. What do you think about that? Not a very good place to find refuge. Where could I go but to the Lord? Where could I go? David knew that he needed to trust the Lord. Look at how he emphasizes this. Drop down to verse 6. I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. See, there were idols, but David was not about to trust in idols like many of his contemporaries did. He was going to trust in the Lord. Then look at verse 14. But as for me, now notice that phrase, but as for me, that directly follows what we read starting in verse 9 about what a mess he was and about how much he was struggling Yeah, he was really struggling, but he says, he says, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. He knows you are my God. There's a statement in verse five also that he writes that we typically relate more to Jesus than David. But David said it first in your hand, I commit my spirit. You want to know what trust is? It's right there. It's doing exactly what Jesus did on the cross and David did when he was so overwhelmed. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, my body, my spirit, my present, my future, everything that I am and everything that I have, I commit to you. When we have that kind of spirit and that kind of attitude, you know what that's going to prompt us to do? Not lean on our own so-called knowledge, which is ignorance, and so much on our own wisdom, because it's more like foolishness. But the spirit of a person who trusts in the Lord is expressed at the end of verse 3. He cries out to God and begs God, lead me, lead me, guide me. That's trust. That's how a trusting heart wants to be. 
led by God and taught by God. I'll bet you have run into people who give you the distinct impression that they think they know it all. I hope none of us are that way, but have you ever run into somebody like that? They know it all. You know what the reality is? Nobody knows everything about anything. That's the facts. Now, there are a lot of smart people in this world, and boy, I'm glad we have a lot of smart people in this world, but nobody knows everything about anything. We have way more ignorance than we have knowledge. We need to embrace our ignorance. Remember Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. That proverb in chapter 3, 5, and 6 says what we ought to do, trust. In whom we ought to trust, the Lord. How we ought to do that with all of our heart. And what that means. We do not lean on our own understanding. We don't know everything. You know, instead of focusing so much on why in the world has this happened... How about asking the question, what in the world should I do now? If you don't know the answer to that question, who does? I love what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2. There is a God in heaven. There may have been nobody who knew about the dreams, nor how to interpret them. But Daniel said there is a God in heaven, and he knows. And he knows how we can navigate the terrible storms in our life. Now, would we be transparent enough to admit that that ain't always easy? Would we be willing to go to the point of saying, sometimes it is hard even to trust in the Lord? Would we be willing to be that transparent and that humble? Lauren Daigle sings a song. I'll save you the melody. I'll read you the lyrics. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. That is the conviction of the heart of faith. But that's hard to do sometimes. But that's what we always need to remind ourselves. Even when we're overwhelmed with a lot of difficult feelings and thoughts because of what we're going through, we need to remember to trust in the Lord. Now, despite the fact he was in a deep pit... And he was struggling mightily, and he was a mess. Besides trusting in the Lord, he did not permit his burdens to blind him to his blessings. Because he knew there was a God in heaven. And he had a heart after that God in heaven. So, in verse 19, he breaks forth in praise. Imagine that. In this deep pit, when he's such a mess... He chooses to praise the Lord. 
Oh, how great is your goodness. Hey, by the way, notice in your Bible reading, a lot of times when you see these references to a characteristic of deity, there is often a, an adjective that modifies that characteristic. Oh, how great is your goodness. It's good to have some goodness. God has great goodness. Probably a reference to the quality and amount Oh, how great is your goodness, which you've laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord. If you were in Bible class, do you remember that? Remember that phrase? Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous. There's the adjective. Kindness and a strong city. Remember the goodness of God. It's easy sometimes to feel so burdened that we don't even see blessings in our life. Remember the good man Job? You know, he's kind of on the same level as David, a man after God's own heart. Boy, the description of him, I mean, it wasn't just his reputation. It was his character. It's the way God viewed him. He was a great man of God. But yet Job said, man that's born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Job, you may be hurting really bad and your burdens may be really heavy. And you may be at a breaking point in your life, but your life is not full of trouble. You may feel that way, but that's not the case. Job, you're still married. Is marriage a blessing? You had somebody to help you through that very difficult time. Do you know what some of us would give to be able to experience life together again with somebody who loves us and somebody that we love? He was blessed to still be married. He had a life. He may have lost his health, but he had a life. Is life a blessing? He had friends. We badmouth those friends because they morphed into miserable comforters. But boy, you know what? The first suggestion I'd have, if you want to be a great, effective servant to help people who are suffering, my number one suggestion is be just like Job's servants. Job 2.11 says they came to him. Sometimes we have a tendency to keep our distance from people who are hurting because it would make us feel uncomfortable or maybe prompt us to have some ugly feelings about our past. And because we believe that our comfort zone ought to be protected, it's actually become our God and it stops us from serving other people. Don't ever let your comfort zone stop you from serving hurting people, no matter how it may make you feel. We're God's first responders. Run to the burning house. Go to where you hear the shot being fired. Go to people. They went for the right reason. They came to mourn and to comfort him. Job 2.11. They also sat with him, ministered to him by their presence. Didn't say a word. They were great friends. Until they opened their mouth. Mark that down on your notes. They began... As great friends, he had great friends. Most importantly, he had a God in heaven who loved him, 
who was well aware of what was going on around him and well aware of what was going on inside of him. And that God in heaven was also striking the borders in which Satan was permitted to be active. God knew his load limit and what he could handle with his help. Job went so far into Job 7 verse 6 to say he had no hope. Job, you had hope because you had God. What in the world were you thinking? He had God in his life. And because he had God, he had hope. See, he was so burdened, he was blinded to his blessings. David, on the other hand, said, The goodness of God is great. His kindness is marvelous. And he chose to praise the Lord. And then look at the end of the psalm. Verse 23, O love the Lord, all of his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart, all you who, depending on your translation, hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord. There's a book called Those Who Wait, written by a friend of mine. We entered Fried Hardeman College, it was called at the time, on the same year. Rosemary McKnight, Those Who Wait, great book, highly recommended. This phrase, hope in the Lord or trust, or hope in the Lord or wait on the Lord, is found over 20 times in the Bible. It obviously has great significance. But you know what? You can't go to CVS and get a pill to take to be better at waiting on the Lord. And you're not born with it either. It needs to be taught. It needs to be learned. Do you sing that song? Teach me, Lord, to wait. Sometimes some of the best teaching is done by experience. The school of hard knocks. If you're waiting on the Lord, you're doing the same thing that the waiter or waitress does at the restaurant. You're serving. So you keep serving the Lord. You don't turn your back on Him. You don't distance yourself from Him. You know that He is your hope. And so you continue to serve the Lord. And with that spirit, you find great strength. Did you know there was a Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible? That's what I call it, the Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible. It's the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40. You're very familiar with it. The last verse, verse 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord, there's that phrase again, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What do you need when you're feeling overwhelmed? You need strength. So he says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. You find this on home interior products in places like Hobby Lobby. Thus, the Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible. Sometimes we take a verse and don't appreciate it enough because we don't know the context. Let me read a part of the context I'm going to go all the way up to verse 24 of that same chapter. Watch what the chapter is emphasizing here as it concludes in our English Bibles. Verse 21, have you not 
known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Then look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? There's the same two questions again. Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, see, See what the point of that verse is? Our God is an awesome God. He is the almighty God who sits on the circle above the earth. He is sovereign. He is on the throne. Keep serving the Lord. Our hope is not in better circumstances in this world. I'm talking about our confident expectation. I'm not talking about our mere desire or wish. Yes, we desire our circumstances to be better in this world. They may or they may not be. But what we can have confident expectation about is heaven. There's going to be an end to that burdensome time. Hopefully it's this side of eternity and hopefully sooner rather than later. But maybe not till you breathe your last breath. Often I'm hindered on my way. Burden so heavy, I almost fall. Then I hear Jesus sweetly say, Heaven will surely be worth it all. Heaven will surely be worth it all, worth all the trials that here befall. After this life, with all of its strife, Heaven will surely be worth it all. I have to keep telling me, the me inside of me, I have to keep telling me, that's true. No matter how I feel, no matter what I'm going through, that is true. But it doesn't stop us sometimes from feeling like we are drowning in the negative circumstances of our life. There's a God in heaven who loves you. And he has a church that's the best support group on planet earth, his church. And if you're in this room right now and you're struggling with something very difficult in your life, you know what would be really good? It'd be really good for the people in this room to know that you're a mess. And it's okay to let other people know you're not okay. Because it's then we open ourselves up to the opportunity to be loved by God through his people. And if you're struggling with something and you're overwhelmed, I want you to really feel free. I want to encourage you to go ahead and respond. There are men who struggle with the addiction to pornography. There are women who have 
sought relationships out of marriage and men as well. There are mental health issues like depression, schizophrenia. There's financial burden sometimes that make us wonder how we're going to make it another day. Don't try to carry that burden by yourself. Let the Lord, through his church, help you. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. Because when you become a child of God, that means every step you take, he is going to be with you. And his divine presence will be a blessing to you as you sense it more in your life, as you grow in your faith. And it can give you boldness and strength that you've never experienced before. There's not a single thing that you and the Lord cannot handle. But to become his child, you need to seek his holiness. And you do that through the cross of Jesus. Whenever a person is baptized, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, they're baptized into his death, the benefits of his death, and raised to walk a new life. How about you? Can we help you this morning in that way? Remember what I said. It's okay to let other people know you're not okay. Go ahead and respond if you need to while we stand and while we sing.